Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Things that will transform our thinking and point us to Jesus Christ. For your glory we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul is incredulous. He cannot believe how foolishly these believers in Galatia are acting. He's concerned, obviously, about their behavior, their outward behavior. Their outward actions are obviously something he is noted with great concern. He mentions later in his letter, he wrote chapter 5, he's concerned about enmity and strife, jealousy, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. You can tell a breakdown in relationships. He's concerned about that. He also is concerned about envying each other and boasting and challenging each other. Chapter 5, verse 26. A number of these things are outward indicators of something wrong in this church family. Clearly, patient, selfless love was lacking among them. But before Paul deals with the outward fruit, the the issues of their relationships that were becoming a concern to him, as he does in chapters 5 and 6, he addresses the root of their sinful behavior in the chapters leading up to that. It's an important principle, by the way, in parenting. Don't just focus on the outward fruit, the behavior. You must also go deeper and look into the issues of the heart. And so clearly, he attacks their erroneous, idolatrous thought patterns, the, the, the kind of thinking and beliefs that they have bought into. And so the members of these Galatian churches were acting as though someone had misled them, perhaps by flattery, that they sort of appealed to them and made them feel so significant, and they are appealing to them to, to be persuaded by their particular version of things. And so Paul knows that His concern is that these false teachers, these legalists, have come in and they've begun to sow a different gospel. And he said in chapter 1, that is no gospel, but they're claiming that it is the true gospel, but it is not. But Paul knew that ultimately, the one who was promoting this distorted thinking was not just this small group of false teachers. He knows that Satan loves to sow deceptive thoughts into the minds of believers and unbelievers. And so in writing this letter, Paul knew that he was involved in what I would suggest to you is spiritual warfare. You say, where'd you come up with that in this text? Well, if you back up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explained his view of spiritual warfare. I'll give you the page number here. I'll look it up and you can find it if you want. I'm not making this up. He tells us what spiritual warfare really is. It's not fighting with any kind of um, fancy weapons of mass destruction or things like that. Chapter 10 is page 1380 in your pew Bible. He says, we do not war according to the flesh, that is, like other people in the world. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses, for the destruction of strongholds, is the other way of translating that word. He says, we are destroying what? Not people, not buildings, not 
uh, things like that. He says, we are destroying speculations. Or another idea would be uh, thoughts, ideas, philosophies. We are destroying philosophies and ideas and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So I would suggest to you, if you look at this text in that, from that framework, you would say that the real spiritual battleground, Paul understood, and I think it's important for us to understand, is our thought life. What do you think? What do you believe? What is the, the, what is the truth that you keep saying to yourself? Is it truth? The battle is fought in our minds. And elsewhere, Paul reflected on the preparedness for spiritual battle by urging believers to do what? He says, be prepared for spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6, wear the armor of God. He goes through what that includes. It includes what? The helmet of salvation. And I would suggest to you that's a metaphor as he's thinking about the different elements of a Roman piece of armor. He's emphasizing the fact that it's important that we believe biblical doctrine about what Christ has done for us in the gospel and that leads us to understand our spiritual security in Christ to fight against the doubts and discouragements that Satan often will try to bring about as he accuses us which is one of his greatest schemes to undermine the gospel in our thoughts and our minds. So I would suggest we need to wake up and realize that every day If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you are engaged in spiritual warfare. Every day is a battle that's being waged for your thought life. And Paul appealed to the Galatians. He encouraged them to think through the implications of the gospel of grace. Apparently, they had stopped doing that. And therefore, that's why they're in this bewitched and then somebody has pulled something over their eyes, and he now is seeking to engage their minds. And that is why he's asking these rapid-fire questions, one after another, after another, after another. It's not meant to what? To make them tune out. He's asking these questions to engage their minds. Think with me, he says. Engage yourself for a moment and think about the gospel with me. Verses 1 to 5, that's what he's doing, right? Did you catch all the questions there? Questions are designed to elicit serious reflection on the gospel truths that Paul had previously taught them, and apparently they've just sort of faded into the way background of their realizations. So Paul urges them to review the basics of the gospel of grace alone, and he directs them to reflect upon three things. I'm going to summarize them as three things. You could do, you could do this three different, you could, two different ways of looking at this text. You could look at it from the point of view of he gives them a Trinitarian view of their, of their salvation, emphasizing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is in this text. Clearly, I could have preached a sermon with that in my outline. But I've chosen to go the angle of, I think he emphasizes their experience of salvation. He's appealing to them to go back and review your experience of salvation in Christ. And so, therefore, he's reviewing the fact of God's work of salvation in the past in their life, in the future... And in the present. So follow along with me here as we look through the text, verses 1 and 2. First of all, he deals with the past, conversion. These Galatian believers were acting the way 
that they, have, they are acting in such a way as if they've come under a spell. He just can't make sense of why these people are acting and thinking the way they are. Because this small band of legalists have come there and they've compelled these believers to somehow concur that the keeping the law is necessary for them to complete their salvation. So Paul is pointing them back to their conversion experience and he points them back to his earlier ministry. He says, let's go back now and let's retrace what happened. I was ministering there among you, came to your area, I was there to proclaim to you and present to you the gospel. And he says, what did I do? Well, the central element of the gospel that I did before you was I did not emphasize that which you must do. I emphasized what? I put on display for you to see clearly is Jesus Christ crucified. That's what I made known to you. That's what I tried to help you come to grips with. I kept talking about, I kept emphasizing, I walked you through exactly what happened to Jesus Christ on that cross. Look at verse 1. He says, he publicly portrayed Jesus' death. It's an interesting phrase, publicly portrayed. It's a word that comes from the first century advertising world. In other words, he was saying, it's as if, it was a first century billboard. He's saying, I made it so clear, it's so big, so, so amazing, you couldn't miss it. It's a message that's there, and I put it before you again and again so you wouldn't miss pointing you to Christ and his crucifixion. I don't know how many of you have endured the long, long drive down 95 to Florida from here. We did it once, not again. Three kids in the car. Hey, Dad, when are we going to get there? I'm like, son, it's only New Jersey. I mean, come on. <laughs> so we're headed to Florida, 95. And what happens? When you get in North Carolina, you start hitting all these billboards, right, for south of the border. How many of you have seen the billboards? Okay. Uh, not one, not five, must be about 105 billboards announcing Pedro and south of the border. People who are driving down there are thinking, this must be incredibly amazing. I mean, look at all these billboards. And so you have nothing else to do. You pull in this place. And I would say to you, in my opinion, the billboards containing all of Pedro's promises don't match up anywhere close to the hype. How many of you have proved the same thing? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. All right. That's the opposite here. But the power of the billboards is what? It draws people in there. But Paul's saying, I put before you a billboard so big, so bold, so compelling of portraying Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. He said, I did that again and again. I pointed you to Jesus' selfless sufferings on that cross. And I did it in such a vivid way, in such a compelling way, it's as if you had almost been an eyewitness and saw it happen yourself. So when Paul was ministering among them, he displayed through his preaching the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Paul's ministry centered around this essential gospel truth. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, he said, I taught you the word of the cross. He says, I preached Christ crucified. He said in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, I determined to know among you Nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That is the gospel. 
And what I would suggest to you is a way of trying to summarize this public profession, this public uh, display, portrayal, is that Paul proclaimed what I'm going to summarize are the indicatives of the gospel. You say, what are you talking about? Indicatives of the gospel. Well, some of you, how many of you attended English class? Uh, okay, don't raise your hands. You know, it's, it, we all did. If you went to any kind of school, you had English classes. And supposedly you learned that there are different kinds of verbs. Some verbs, verbs are statement verbs, statements of what has happened or something that is occurring. Indicative. And so Paul, in this particular passage, reviews an indicative, which means that what? Jesus' death occurred as a historical event, but it's uses it in such a way that that is true. But the verb he uses here carries the idea of, in the Greek, something that's true, but it has continuous effects upon the present. So something is true that God has done in Christ. He sent his son to die on the cross, but that has an ongoing impact on us day to day. And he says, essentially, the ongoing effects are here and now. And the big difference between, there's a big difference between an indicative, Jesus died on the cross, and an imperative. An imperative verb, stay with me now, this is English, but it'll help you. An imperative verb is what? A command. You must do this. It's an exhortation. Let us do this. Stop doing this. That's an imperative, a command. The gospel is first and foremost not an imperative. It is an indicative. It is a statement of what God has done in Christ. Period. You've got to start there. It is not primarily a long list of rules. And that's what the legalists were turning it into. Paul's saying, listen, let's go back to the big portrait I've made for you. In public, I kept saying it again and again, it is Christ. And at the core of the gospel of grace is the work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, the Son of God, and what he did on the cross for undeserving sinners like you and me. The gospel is not what we achieve it is not what we accomplish by hard work, by sacrifice, by persistence. The gospel is an indicative. It is Jesus who has accomplished for us through his death and his resurrection what we could never accomplish by ourselves. Because why? Because Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish as one who has no moral imperfections, as one who was the only one who is righteous, that is, he is in right standing with God because he does everything right. There's only one person who could have done that. There's only one person who could act as that substitute. And therefore it is Christ, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous one, suffering for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. That is the indicative, my friend, the indicatives of the gospel. Paul said it this way in chapter 2, verse 20. You all should be memorizing this. I hope you are. That the Son of God loved me and gave and delivered himself up or gave himself for me as my substitute. That is the indicative of the gospel. So therefore, none of us will ever be good enough 
to provide an adequate offering to God. So these Galatians, Galatian Christians, they'd heard these indicatives of what God had done in Christ, and they therefore had responded to that. They had responded, he says in verse 1, by believing. They had received what that message was and said, I trust Christ as the one who bore my sin. I believe, I repent. And the gospel indicatives call us to respond in this way. Not by being better people, therefore, that's why we enjoy the benefits. We come saying, I acknowledge I have no other way of being right with you. I come with empty hands of faith and repentance, willingness to turn from sin. But I would suggest to you, my friend, not only at the moment of conversion do we need to respond by faith and repentance, but I would, consider, I would ask you to consider with me, isn't it true that every day after your conversion, every day after the fact you've come to Christ, we need to believe upon Christ and we need to repent of our sins? It's an ongoing way of life. Christians need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of the completeness of what Jesus has done for us. We need to be reminded of the gracious benefits that Jesus secured for us in his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And so Paul points believers back, back to the beginning, when they were converted. And the only way that we will benefit from Jesus' atoning work on the cross, he emphasized, is to what? Is by reunited, being united to Christ in simple trust, simple faith. And the legalists were emphasizing what? Faith plus trying to save yourself with good works. They were saying, trust Jesus, yes, but then do all these good works to make sure that you've done enough so that he will accept you on the basis of making sure you have done enough. Keep the law, follow all sorts of rules. But my friend, that undermines the value of what Christ has done. I brought with me this morning, I realize there's been a recent movie release about the life of Jackie Robinson. How many of you are aware of that? There's a movie out about that? Okay, some of you are aware of that. Some of you don't know who Jackie Robinson is. He was the first African-American baseball player who actually entered into Major League Baseball. There was a whole other league, unfortunately, and so he broke that barrier. It's a lot about his life, whatever. Uh, I have here... Uh, a black and white photograph of Jackie Robinson. It's autographed. When I was in the sixth grade, I wrote away and said, could you send me your autographed picture? Uh, he signed this picture with a ballpoint pen. Uh, I have the letter he sent me. Uh, Dear Mark, I enjoyed your letter. It was nice of you to write. Best of luck, sincerely, Jackie Robinson. Uh, he lived at West 55th Street, New York, New York, whatever. 1968. Now, I'm going to take this letter, this uh, this. this uh, I'm going to take my pen. I'm just going to trace over his autograph. Okay? Just hold with me here. So I'm just going to write over those letters. <laughs> Nobody objected. That would be a stupid thing to do, wouldn't it? Why? Because from the, from the wise of, the, of people who are collectors, the picture with his autograph has value. But if I write on top of that, I've what? I've taken away the value of what he has provided to me. And the same is true, my friends, when we try to somehow improve on what Christ has done. It can't be improved on. And so Paul goes on and expresses why 
all of our efforts to try to be better people does not, it takes away and robs us of the indicative of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. Look what he says here as he continues on in verse 1, sorry, verse 2. He talks about receiving the Spirit. How did you receive the Spirit? Is it because you became a better person? Started keeping all the law better, more, with greater effort, greater success, and that's why you got the Spirit? Watch this. All the blessings and benefits that Christians enjoy through the gospel are received on the basis of grace. Simple trust in Christ and taking him at his word and receive it on the basis of grace. And this includes the wonderful gift that every believer receives, no matter what age you are when you come to Christ, every believer, upon trusting in Christ, repenting of your sins, you receive the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is very clear now. You must understand this. The Spirit of God is not given because we deserve him. He is not given because of our spiritual achievements that we somehow begin to check off. I've done this, did this, did this, stopped doing this, stopped doing this, and therefore now I get the Spirit. The Spirit of God is not bestowed upon an elite group of somehow these believers as a result of their commendable performance of spiritual duties. The Holy Spirit is freely given as a gracious gift to every single believer, every Christian. Romans 8, verse 9, look it up. And that's what Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. Peter said in his sermon, Repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive, what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift. Acts 2.38. In Ephesians 1, we are told, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, watch this, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says, do you realize that the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you is a gift you graciously receive? Do you know that? Do you think you got the Spirit because you somehow got your act together? See, the gospel points us to Christ who freely gives us the indwelling Spirit of God the moment we fully transfer our trust to Jesus and Him alone. The Holy Spirit is not provided subsequently to our conversion. And this is often taught in certain churches, that somehow you receive the Holy Spirit subsequent to the moment of your conversion, the moment of your regeneration. That's not true. Some sort of deal in which you're It's dependent upon some higher level of living. If you get to the higher level of living, then you get the Spirit of God. No, no. It's not what he's saying at all. It's not what the Scriptures teach. John 16, 14 gives us a wonderful insight that Jesus gave his followers regarding the Spirit of God. Here's what he said. The Spirit of truth, John 16, 14, the Spirit of truth will glorify me. Glorify Christ. And he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. Now follow me here. Could it be that some of us are missing out on life and peace promised by the Holy Spirit as followers of Christ? 
I would suggest those Galatian believers had, and I would suggest many of us may also do that, is because we no longer are enjoying Christ. Why? Because we are putting so much emphasis on what we're doing or not doing well enough or not often enough or whatever it is. And so the emphasis is on me and my performance and on my efforts and those things instead of what? I need to emphasize the indicatives of the gospel. What has Christ done for me? Who am I because of what Christ has done? What have I received because of grace? I've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. To do what? Not so that I can become a person who's trying to become better so that Christ will accept me, but because I am in Christ, because of what Christ did for me, and therefore the Spirit of God is pointing me not to, me, not to my own attempts to be a better person. The Holy Spirit is pointing me to Christ. Look at Christ. Look at what, the Spirit, look what Christ did for you. He paid it all. Where you are as a Christian, was given to you as a gift, it's all of grace. He says, why would you want to be duped into somehow thinking you must add to all that with your attempts to be improve yourself? Much more I could say about that. I need to move on. He deals with the past when they came to Christ. He also looks forward to the future, verse 3. The future, sanctification. Another word, another way of saying, explaining sanctification, by the way, is just to be to be set apart unto God with the goal of becoming more and more like Christ. Now, notice the third question we read there in verse 3. Are you so foolish? By the way, the second time he's emphasizing their foolishness. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Hmm. Here's another issue, another area of spiritual battle that we face day by day. It is this. Are we forgetting that our Christian life began by grace through faith and that are we now going to rely on our own flesh, our own human nature of unaided by the Spirit of God to somehow gain spiritual maturity? That once you come to Christ, now it's all, you're on your own. Now you've got to move toward maturity and you've got to work it out yourself. That's it. Period. Are you merely going to apply to your life as a Christian now a long list of external rules and assume that primarily, primarily, this is going to move you forward to Christ's likeness? Just checking off lists, keeping rules, keeping lists. That's what it's all about. Listen, Paul knows that that kind of thinking is nothing more than foolishness. Why? Because he was the former Pharisee, right? He was the ultimate rule keeper. That was Paul. He was one of the best rule keepers around. He had rules for his rules, and he kept those as best he could. He had a level of zeal and devotion to keeping those long list of rules that was unmatched by anybody. He stood apart. And he did all those things out of his flesh. His motivation was primarily to impress other people, and it was to gain his own merit. He had nothing to do with Jesus. It was all about himself. But the gospel dynamic is so different. You see, because the gospel indicatives, that is, that Christ paid for and Christ provided uh, that which we enjoy, the gifts of forgiveness, the gift of new status as a believer... 
It brings with us these tremendous blessings of being adopted as a child of God on the basis of grace. And therefore, the gospel brings not only a new status, but it brings a new internal dynamic. Why? Because of the indwelling Spirit of God who lives in us. And according to Romans 8 and Galatians 5, a Spirit who leads us. A Spirit who guides us. A Spirit who helps us along the way. This is fascinating. The more you think about it, that's where Paul's going. He's going to emphasize what? The Spirit of God. That's what the book continually is pointing to us. Instead of keeping rules, it's the Spirit of God. And rather than having to produce a bunch of fruit, outward good works in our own strength and determined effort, the gospel of grace points us to Christ who provides us his Holy Spirit, John 14, who abides in us and is in us. I'm afraid some of us in our Christian life, we've lost sight of the Spirit of God and His work in us and abiding with us. Let me see if I can take this concept and see if I can apply it in a way that makes sense here, even on Father's Day, to where some of us are struggling. Raising children, clearly, is a privilege, but let me tell you, it is a humbling challenge. Being the father... It's a tremendous responsibility, and if you're a half-loving father, which I hope you are, maybe you're a very strong-loving father, you do things to try to teach your kids all sorts of things, right? You have to teach your kids about everything. And so you teach them what they need to do, you teach them what they should not do. And so we instruct them on the importance of sharing, we instruct them on the importance of being a peacemaker, we instruct them on the importance of doing your chores and being responsible and all that stuff, being polite, and you warn them against a number of moral dangers, which you know full well they're going to be tempted to do as they get older. Now, what's your approach, and what, what approach do you adopt when it comes to making sure your kids are getting it? Well, for some reason, kids don't automatically, just sort of when they're you know, eight or nine years old, they look up at you someday and they say, you know, Dad, I just relish your wisdom. You are so wise. You know, I really respect you. You've given me such good counsel. I appreciate those times you've corrected me. I appreciate those times you've really addressed my pride in my life. And, you know, I really want you to know that I really want to seek your godly counsel from here on out. When as I get to be a teenager, that's what I'm really looking for, Dad. Anybody have a conversation with your kid like that? No. So the problem is that we face children who oftentimes they don't want to hear what we have to say or they're stubborn like we were when we were kids. You think you know everything. And so one approach you can take to try to get your kids to learn it is to take the iron fist approach. This is the way it's going to be around here. So you become a demanding father who, and this is not funny, a father who with hostility tainting your voice intimidates your children into conforming to your demands when they're in your presence. And so just the voice of this authoritarian figure is enough to scare them out of their minds, and they're going to do whatever you tell them to do. Now, that's the approach some people take as fathers. Now, what happens with that approach? Unless you reach the heart of your child, 
The child, while under your influence in that kind of threatening, that kind of demanding, that kind of intimidating context, yes, they'll, they'll usually shape up. They'll really do the things you're supposed to do. But guess what? They'll only do it so long. And as soon as they get out from underneath your iron-heavy fist, they're off doing whatever they want to do. They don't give a rip about what you've said about all those things, and they, there's no way you can do anything about it. You have no control over it. Let me suggest to you the gospel dynamic is so different, refreshingly different, that the gospel dynamic is to say we teach our children the gospel indicatives. Look at Christ, we teach our kids. Don't look at me all the time, because I'll admit when I fail. Look at Christ. Look what he did for you. Look what Christ, he rescues sinners like me and you. You tell yourself you're in the same category. It is Christ who's interceding for you as I am praying for you. It is Christ who forgives sinners like you and me. It is Christ who gives sinners like you new hearts, which I desperately needed, and I'm praying that you'll have someday. It is the gospel dynamic is so different. Look at Galatians 4. Skip a chapter there. Look at verses 4 to 6 as Paul picks up on Another indicative of the gospel, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Watch this. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Watch that. Where did he send the spirit? In our hearts. The spirit of God is meant to impact our hearts. What we believe, what we live for, what motivates us. He sends the Spirit of God into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Adopted children of God are people who have hearts that are guided by and prompted by the Holy Spirit. And the Christian life, I would suggest to you, is the greatest need your child has. The greatest need your child has is Christ and the gospel. Not just to be polite, not just to be a person who's responsible, not just a person who is able to to do chores and follow through. Those are all good and well, and yes, we value those things. But your child needs Christ. And a loving father who is understanding, aware of that, that needs a heart that's changed by the gospel is going to be a heart who does what? You're going to pray for your kids. You're going to humble yourself and say, I cannot do what my, what, give my child what they desperately need. They need a new heart. And unfortunately, so many of us need challenge, again, to take the gospel and apply the gospel to the heart issues of our children in the moments in which they express their rebellion, express their foolishness, express their, their uh, defiance of our authority at times. We see the evidence of their sin. We we correct them and we discipline them in love and we point them to Christ, admitting that we ourselves have done the same foolish, stupid things and we desperately need a Savior just like they do. I commend you again, if you're a, chi- a parent, a father with a small child under your care, read Shepherding the Heart of Your Child. It is biblically saturated, biblically profound, tremendously helpful and humbling but it's a great guide to help us to include the gospel in our parenting. What's Paul saying? Okay, let's get back here. Paul's saying the Christian life begins 
and the Christian life will end in reliance upon God. God begins the work of salvation by grace. He will complete the work of salvation by grace. Thank God for that verse, Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who's going to begin the work? Who begins the work? Who's going to perfect it? It's not me. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's the indicative of the gospel. Having confidence in Christ is the fruit of gospel truth, not self-confidence. Too many parents want, too many parents want their kids to be self-confident. You can do it, Johnny. You could be president of the United States. Do we want them to be, oh yeah, I'm everything, baby. I can do anything. I'm my husband. No, we want them to be confident in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's Christ's confidence. Too much parenting is trying to build up kids' egos so that they think they're the end all and everything and the whole world centers around them. No, the world centers around Christ. Okay, I'm off on another tangent. Okay, here we go. May I just say to you that any hope of confidence that I may have of reaching a state of full sanctification of being like Christ is rooted in what God began in me, in what God has worked in me, what God has overcome in me, what God has replaced in me, what God has taught me, what God has disciplined me, what God has drawn my heart toward him. It's all about Christ. It's all about his grace shown to me. That's what he's reminding them about their future. It will all be of grace when you finally get to the end. Praise God. Praise God. Number three. He talks about the past, he talks about the future, he also talks about the present and asks questions regarding suffering and spiritual power. Here's another question, verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Paul's reminding here his brothers and sisters in Christ that the call of the gospel of grace is a call to share in the sufferings of a crucified Savior. If we earn our salvation by good works and we gain acceptance before God by our performance of pious deeds, there's no reason to give our lives and to follow the gospel that points us to the shame of a crucified Savior who died on a cross. One of the things we need to remember is that the gospel is not a call to being comfortable. Too many people think that. They, they think, oh, once I've come to Christ, now everything's good between me and God. Okay, now God, would you make my life comfortable, please? Take away my problems. Fix everything out there that's annoying me. And help me to live in my ease in the here and now. Because I'm walking on the path that leads to glory. There's a problem with that, right? That kind of theology is what? That's a theology that says we suffer now and we what? There's greater glory thereafter. You got you mixed up your, your way of thinking. You say, I want to wear the crown now and then I'll suffer. No, no. You've got to suffer here and then we are glorified in glory. The gospel is a call to trust Jesus, to follow him no matter the cost, no matter the loss. And when Paul celebrated the gospel, he put it this way in Philippians 3. What did he say? I used to be the greatest of all rule keepers, 
But then my heart was changed by the gospel, and now I have a righteousness through faith in Christ. Christ did it for me. He celebrates the blessing of knowing Christ and the knowing the power of the resurrection. And what? And the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Jesus was rejected. He died on a cross. And the gospel of a cross where Jesus died is offensive to the world. They get tired of hearing about it. They find themselves rolling their eyes about, oh, here we go again, this crazy cross and all this sin talk. But those who embrace the gospel of a crucified Savior who deals with sinners on the basis of grace can expect to be hated and reviled by the world. It makes no sense to suffer as a follower of a crucified Savior if you're striving to gain acceptance before God by performing good works and somehow not living in light of the cross. You're living in light of what? Of you doing everything necessary and forgetting the cross. So Paul says, hey, listen, such good works like that, if that you're going to buy into all this false teaching of these legalists, you're going to make the cross null and void and worthless. So therefore, expect to suffer. And they did suffer. And then he's going, don't you remember that? Don't you, aren't you getting it? <laughs> he's trying to connect the dots and help them understand it. All right, let's look at the last question here. Verse 5, stay with me. Does he then, does God, who provides you with the Spirit, does God who works miracles among you do those things by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Now I would suggest to you if you carefully look at this verse, <clears throat> you will notice the tense of the verb is significant. It is a present tense verb. That means there's something going on right now. That's why number three is present. It talks about what's going on right now. God himself right now is providing to you assistance from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> to empower us to do what formerly we never would have dreamed of doing. Isn't that the truth? Have you ever known a, an area of your life where you say, man, I used to be like this, and now I'm like this? For example, if you're giving, is your giving coerced and primarily motivated out of guilt, out of a desire to impress other people, or do you give grudgingly, feeling like you're compelled to give because some sort of set of rules that you have to follow. I need to give X percent of my income to God. I need to check that off on my list of things that I need to be doing. Or is your giving spirit-led? It's the work of, a of, the, of the Holy Spirit in you that you give to the local church. It's prompted by the, by the overflow of a gratitude that you have toward God as you think about it and rehearse the gospel in your mind. And you have to say, my desire is to worship and glorify you in all things, including how I use the resources that you've entrusted to me. And since we've been graciously and freely received so many things from God, then part of the overflow of that is that outwardly I'm giving because I, my heart is, longs to give. I, I joyously, I give, he says in the scriptures, cheerfully. That's the result of the Holy Spirit, my friend. Otherwise, it makes no sense in the eyes of the world. The flesh cannot even have any categories for how anybody could give money as freely as they do to the ministry of the gospel. 
And the gospel of grace operates in our daily lives as we respond to the gracious gifts that God has freely bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, is your, is your life with Christ right now, is it drudgery? Do you find it's just the gritting of your teeth? You say, oh, man, I have to pray. I have to sit down and pray. I've got to read my Bible today. Oh, gee, here we go again. Check it off my list. Oh, okay, I guess I've got to get something to the church. Is that, is that, the, is that the, the, the experience that you have as a follower of Christ? Paul says that's what I'm sounding like going on in the lives of these Galatian believers. Is that what we are doing? Or have you seen the Holy Spirit use the gospel to begin to impact your heart in ways to begin to see other fruit that's in keeping with the fact that you are no longer at enmity against God. You're now a child of God. So you're becoming over a period of time more and more like your father. So that, that, have you ever seen the Holy Spirit actually help you with your temper? Have you ever seen the Holy Spirit help you where you used to be a person who just let all this stuff out and now you find yourself saying, I want to speak to that issue. That's Wow, that's crazy. That's, that's the Spirit of God. Or helping you with controlling your shopping that some of us have used to live a certain way and whatever you saw, you just got it, put it on the credit card. Who cares? I'm just going to get it now. I've got to have it now. And now you're saying, okay, Lord, let me pray about this. Let's see, I really don't think I can afford this right now. This, that's not wise. Do you find yourself seeing the Spirit of God because of the power of the gospel is affecting the way in which you have shown greater patience toward your spouse in responding to things that you've sensed in the past you didn't handle so well? Is your reticence to lead spiritually in your home if you're a father your reticence to pray with and for your family members is something that you've seen the Spirit of God begin to change you and say, I have a desire to pray for my kids because I desperately need the Lord. Just like we sang the chorus, I need you. Oh, I need you. That's a prayer. <laughs> Do you ever pray that prayer? Do you ever sense the Spirit of God is saying, you know, you really ought to lead that to the, to the Lord and cry out to God because you are his child, you know. Look what he did for you. You know, you can relate to him. He cares for you. Makes all the difference in the world. And so I say, my friend, we got to do battle. It's time to do battle for what we think in terms of applying to our hearts and our minds and our hearts, the gospel. We need to be gospel people. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, how we thank you that we can call you Father. Not because we've performed things well and somehow become worthy to become your children. Lord, we fully admit we do not deserve to call you Father. But we do so because of Christ because of the indicatives of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't really has never embraced Christ, they've heard about Christ today, we've tried to put a big, clear, public portrayal of Christ and what he's done for us in the gospel. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here today who's never said, Lord, I surrender to you. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I need a new heart. I admit that I'm 
facing the wrath of God because of all things I've done to offend a holy God, and I have no other plea but to flee to Christ and to trust him and to give me a new status and a new identity, a new hope. Lord, I pray that this would be the day that they would do that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that not only would they embrace the gospel, but I pray that those of us who have come to Christ, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves every day, that we would do battle against Satan's schemes. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us, by your Spirit, a fresh sense of wonder and amazement at your grace that will evidence itself, Lord, in outward fruit, beginning to show itself in hearts that are just filled with wonder and love and appreciation for you. And therefore, Lord, the things in our lives begin to change because of that. Lord, may your gospel indicatives lead to gospel imperatives. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen.